0: G'day, welcome back to the Talking Leadership TV podcast series. Our guest today is Daniel Fletcher. He's the General Manager Community and Livability at the Western Downs Regional Council. He's a dynamic, engaging and inspiring leader, able to swiftly deliver outcomes and implement positive change. As a highly motivated and thought-provoking public sector leader, Daniel's committed to the following, reconciliation, equity, diversity and inclusion, change management and continuous improvement. Data driven decision making, promoting and contributing to a positive organizational culture that's focused on occupational and psychological safety, and building green, clean, and sustainable communities. He's passionate about being driven by value with his person centric focus, which has created both meaningful change while navigating sensitive and complex challenges in both the business and political environment. Daniel's a graduate from the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He has studied at Griffith University, completing Bachelor's in Psychology and a Bachelor in Criminology and Criminal Justice, and brings hands-on experience across the public and private sector. He continues to dedicate his time to study, currently completing his Master's in Public Administration with the University of Technology, Sydney. Thanks again for joining us and supporting the podcast, but enough from me. Over to Daniel. Let's get started with the first of the themes here, if we can, mate. Uh, your leadership and its beginnings.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I think the easy way to answer this one for me was sport. Um, I was uh, fortunate to be talented at, at some different sports at a young age. And I think, as a result of that, certainly by default, not by demonstration of any particular leadership skills, certainly at that age. Um, that meant I became selected as the captain of a number of those teams while I was younger. And that probably well, it certainly did continue um, to transition uh, as I got older in, in the sporting world. And I often tell this story to some of my staff as well, that um, my, my leadership journey is one that has unfolded from a career perspective in, in a way that we look back now on leadership or people being appointed in their leadership roles as problematic. So I would, um, I certainly was able to commence and complete uh, projects and to a relatively high standard in a relatively short amount of time. And that was beneficial or advantageous to my superiors. So after completing one, I'd get another and then another and then another. And by virtue of, uh, I guess, being able to complete the The projects themselves um i was possibly viewed as uh, someone who could potentially you know be elevated into a into the next level role not necessarily for any of the the more contemporary leadership um, characteristics that we may discuss later but that was certainly the the beginnings i I guess of, of my leadership
0: journey yeah and um it's it's always uh a trippy thing to hear from guests that where they started uh, potentially thinking about leadership or at least applying it in some senses was through sport and sport allows you to do that if you want to take that leadership role and it really does delineate between those that are happy to follow and those that, that want to set the agenda we, we've met these people in 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 our days coming up and you, you can tell with some people, would like to get your perspective on this, that you can just pick out who the natural leaders are, even young. They may not have all the behaviours you'd want to see in a leader, but you see that there's something more than just uh, wanting to be a follower. Does that does does that resonate for you, mate?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, certainly when I look back on my younger sporting career and even my probably less accomplished uh, adult sporting career, I, I should say, that... Um, it's easy to spot the people who are willing to step forward, I guess, into those leadership roles, less so from a career or, or employment perspective, but definitely my um, experience uh, and observations in that sporting space. And often it, it well, my, my observations were it was often the people that were either the loudest um, in, in some respect and willing to, um, I guess, dictate certain um, uh, there might be moves on the sporting field or it might be you know, willing to speak up um, in, in that environment which probably predicated a lot of that the, the captaincy and leadership um, decisions of, of younger sporting groups and you know it's interesting when you consider that it re- even now your, your professional sporting groups and the the different the different type of leaders that are leading adult teams now even that often adult professional teams now select their own leaders as opposed to the coach or the coaching staff making a decision about who the, who the leader will be. And that's been a huge, um, I would suggest, a, a monumental shift in, in leadership in the sporting space in the last couple of decades.
0: Yeah, I have to agree. Um, again, it, it's, it doesn't surprise me given the country we live in that sport offers you that opportunity. Uh, and just just to morph this a little bit, because moving away from sports into your professional career, and I think we're about the same age. I'm, you're, you're, I'm probably a little older than you, but in your travels dealing with other potential industry sector levels of government and people you've met, how I'll put this in two parts, I think. How do you define leadership for you? And has that definition changed over time from your perspective?
1: Yeah, this, this question was really challenging for me, probably because uh, I think there's a, a variety of different leaders and leadership styles, and as a result, I think it's really difficult to pinpoint one definition of leadership, save for my, my view that leadership is the ability to influence the head, the heart, and the hands of people. Now, there is a lot more to leadership, but I think that is the core element to it. And I think a really good example of that is you, if we look at a contemporary scenario now, someone like Donald Trump, by my, by virtue of my definition, is a really good leader. Um, I think he's, he's leading down a very negative path, but nevertheless, the definition I apply to it is it means he is a good leader and he can get individuals to think and to feel and, and uh, ostensibly to act as well, in terms of voting for him and and uh, riding against the the capital, all of those things that that you we we see in the media here. Um, though I, I certainly don't um, support or condone that version of leadership, but it really is about the influence. And for me, it's about you know the the head, the heart, and the hand. So it's uh, what is it that how how can you influence what people think, what they believe, and then what they actually do? So I think. I don't know if it's changed over time, but I don't know if I really held a strong view on what leadership was when I was younger. And I think by virtue of just, as I explained before, being selected as a leader in a sporting team, primarily because I was probably one of the better players and willing to speak up, that didn't necessarily mean that I embodied leadership characteristics at the time. I, I really didn't know what a leader was. Um, I probably felt I was a leader because I was being selected as the captain in, in in here, And I'm really lucky that uh, I consider myself very fortunate because uh, I've been exposed to some really great leaders along the way and during the period of not knowing what leadership was, I didn't know that they were great leaders. Looking back now, I realise they were great leaders and now I get the active choice of uh, associating myself with good leaders. So I'm not sure if, it, if my definition changed. I probably just never really had one when I was younger until I truly understood what what leadership was.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, definitely there is no right and wrong here. Um, Daniel, I think the, just having the discussion um, illuminates a couple of things. I'm interested in that, um, that split between leadership with good outcomes and leadership with not so good outcomes. And Donald Trump's quite a good example of that. And look, um I won't go down the, the politics side of things other than to say him as a figure in the leadership space. Yeah, it's it's interesting if you use your definition, he would be uh in some senses next level because he got people to do things that uh by convincing their head and their heart that those things need to be done. Now we could have a debate, an unending debate about whether or not that was good, bad or somewhere in between. But um I, I can see where you're coming from and you're the first to bring that up. So Again, one just as an aside, people ask me why I do this. This is good professional development for me when you have these conversations with people because I had never thought of it um that way. And I guess as an ongoing thing, um one theme that has come up quite a lot in my uh early podcasting days around this topic area was the reluctant leader, the reluctant entrepreneur. You've added another element to that and it's the the person who doesn't know that they're one or the other, but other people see that in them. And that um having that ability to spot that talent is I think one of the one of those things in your leadership toolkit that is quite handy to have, particularly if you're trying to build teams to spot one, what does talent look like? Two, but in that pool of talented human beings you've got working with you. Who, who demonstrates leadership traits versus those that um, don't or don't want to? Because again, this is about a choice. You, you make a choice to be a leader or not. And it, it, it sounds like you may have been, uh, leadership might have been thrust upon you at some point. But look, um, it sounds like you, you took it on. And um, I would expect most normal people like yourself don't think about leadership on a regular basis. I'm thinking about this quite a lot more than is probably um, normal or healthy to do. But I get that um, most people in a job aren't thinking about their leadership role. And I might ask you one more thing before we go on, because I'm interested in getting your perspective here. That idea about leaders being introspective practitioners, thinking about their leadership practice, is that something you're doing more now that you're in in, in a leadership position or have had leadership experiences? Or is that... An ongoing discussion in your own mind, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's a really profound question because I'm actually going through uh, a process of our quarterly updates with uh, with managers here on their performance, and it's it's been a, a topic I've been spending a lot of time talking to them about. Um, I'm a uh, psychology graduate, and um, I've in some of my explanations to people, I find that. A lot of the work I did studying at university many years ago has not necessarily helped me influence the world around me, but it's been able to help me influence myself and as a result become a better leader because I'm being, I'm actively starting to look at myself, understand what I do, what I say, how I do things and how that impacts other people. And I think when you can really have that strong sense of uh, self-reflection and and the better you get at self-regulating Um, yourself what you're doing what you're saying how you're doing these things you will inadvertently become a better a better leader but it's just good to know what you're doing and there are certainly some people that are in formal leadership positions who are poor leaders they don't understand that there are many people exercising leadership that have no formal authority to do so but in and it's because of their actions and their words and that they inspire trust and energy in other people and i think that's to me i sort of take leadership i look at leadership certainly my own leadership and focus on a very a coaching style of of, of leadership and that's served me well and i've i've learned from those profound leaders in in, in my past that that's uh, probably the the style that suits me better but also the style that i've resonated with as well as as a learner from other leaders and the way i um probably uh, encapsulate that is it's, it's the act of identifying that potential in someone else then actively nurturing it amplifying that potential and if you do that well your energy is invested in that and then you're you become more successful because those people are delivering for the greater good of the team or the organization and it's really hard to do i found that shift really challenging because as i explained earlier that that sense of ownership over the commencement and completion of a particular project always rested with me. And so I was comfortable with the success or failure of what that project ended up with. Now I need to be comfortable with it succeeding or failing while someone else has stewardship over it, and I take the responsibility of being the steward of of helping them grow. So it's been a hugely um, grounding moment for me getting it right, and I I don't know if I've ever got it right, but I I know the path I want to keep taking, so...
0: Yeah, it, it's all in the trying, sir. Uh, I think um, it, uh, the leadership process is a process that there aren't blacks and whites. Obviously, um, you're working with shades of grey when it's working with people, and now that you have to rely on the professional nature of others to get those projects done, uh, I, I sense that loss of control is an issue, but I don't think that's unique Um to any one person and you're, what you're sharing is something that I believe most leaders go through at some point and you either at some stage uh, make your peace with it or you rail against it and move away from leadership roles because uh, my sense of this is as you start moving up in the world that you're going to have less and less connection to the process of delivering and final outcome but you're really hoping you get to the final outcome because that that's part of your deliverables to those above you. And I, I get the tension, um, but it's it's something I think you at some stage you have to come to terms with if that's fair comment.
1: Yeah, it's 100 percent accurate. It's uh, I guess maintaining that accountability over something that you ultimately don't have the intimate control over. And that's and when you look at it, it's the good leaders who do that, and it's the good leaders who uh, or the great leaders who have that that following where people will um, ensure the objective is met because it's bigger than that any, than that one individual. It's uh, the the great leaders sell that compelling story and that compelling vision that people just buy into. And then it becomes a byproduct of what we do. It doesn't necessarily become an active choice. We're here in my environment to work for the community and to serve our community and get the best outcome for our community. So, I mean, getting that into a really compelling story, um, yeah, brings people along in, in an exciting way.
0: Yeah, I, I would I would suggest to you that even the best, most effective leaders you'll come across in in your part of the world of work or others, lawyers have that degree of not being able to cut the cord because it's just human nature. I, I don't think if, if we're being fed income here that that it doesn't come across people's minds. Now, that said, it shouldn't be a deterrent to what you need to do. And I, I've i seen really good leaders put so much faith and trust and build the capability of their people around them that it becomes a non-issue. It's more what else can you be doing? And you try and limit yourself to not taking on too much, but that's a whole nother discussion. Now, you've helped me segue into the next question around sectoral perspectives on leadership issues. So if you can share with the audience what what you do in terms of work at the moment and what you see at a strategic level, what you think the key leadership issues are from, um, I guess, from your perspective, mate.
1: Yeah, well, local government's a very unique environment, um, certainly to be a leader. I've got an incredibly supportive wife and I remember when I uh, her and I met each other I had explained or certainly shared with her my desire and ambition to continue in local government and in, in the public service and um, I said I'd, the one thing I'd learned was that uh, being a, a good leader in the public service means that my team here gets my best time and that my family gets the rest of my time and I don't know how well she um, accepted that at the time but I mean we're we're married, and the kids are coming uh, freely. So let's hope it stays that way. And it's, it's a real challenge because I know that I we often speak about that. Um, and it would be great to be able to get the balance right. It's a it's a constant uh, toing and froing. And the commentary I've made in the local government and public sector perspective is that. Um, you can be a leader, but it won't necessarily mean that you're a good leader if you can't dedicate that time and the energy into, into doing it properly. And one of the, uh, I guess, the centrifugal type uh, natures of the, the local government space is that we have a, a a board, ostensibly a board that is elected by the community. So they, they go out and have the wherewithal to to put their name up and win a poster competition. Now, there's just no shortage of envy I can have for them. I, I have so much respect for elected members who are willing to put themselves in that position where the ultimate prize is to do more work for your community. I think it's it's such a powerful message to understand at the heart of it. And when that, that centrifugal nature of it is that the, the elected members run uh, or ostensibly, go- ostensibly govern our our organisation. So through the executive, we, we deliver the operational piece where the benefit of doing that well is our community gets uh, better livability. And the community who get that livability or the better livability, hopefully, are the ones that keep reinforcing the right people to be elected into that, um, that board to make those decisions at, at the relevant local level. And I think that's really unique um, because, from a while, there is some similarities to the private sector where we could consider our community being the shareholders. The shareholders don't get to walk away from this community. In, a, in the public sector, you, you you can be associated with that, and you can walk away. You can take your dividend and you can leave. Whereas our shareholders, our community, they they essentially don't have a choice. They they have located themselves within a geographical boundary where they are, as property owners, they are required to pay rates or as renters, they pay rents that flow back through to the property owner. And our obligation is to make sure that everybody who lives here, works here and visits here has a great experience when they come here. Um, So I think there's this real um, uniqueness to the the local government space. And the additional uh, layer I'll add in here is, being able to work in, in leadership in local government means that I get to work with the, the elected member group, and they're a group of people who did not get to select each other. Now, as a as a psychology graduate, that gives me a lot of excitement to work with, but it also it creates this really um, powerful sort of dynamic where um, they have a very uh, a very discreet role to respond to the electors who put them in there to make sure that they stay happy. But they also need to keep each other happy. Otherwise, it, it could turn into absolute chaos. And we do see that. We do see some local governments that um, I guess there are some catastrophic outcomes for um, just because uh, governance isn't followed or just general respect isn't applied to each other in those roles. There's a there's a trust breakdown, the relationship between the executive Um, and the political arm isn't working. So there's all these really um, unique nuances to the the leadership space in local government, which I I probably get a a wicked sense of excitement and satisfaction from.
0: Yeah, uh, I understand where you're coming from. I had the good fortune to work for a little while with the um, uh, Local Government Association of Queensland and the Council of Mayors in my younger days. And, yeah, that sense of um, giving something back to your community or to a region is quite a um can be quite an intoxicating thing if that's what motivates you to do the work. I never unfortunately had the opportunity to be in a leadership role in local government, much to my lasting regret. But um I understand where you're coming from and and there'll be a lot of people listening or, or watching this that um will agree. And yeah, you're you're in a constantly um constantly dynamic environment, one, because of the operational nature of working for communities, which has its own set of challenges and, and and you 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 intimately know what those are, but there's also the dynamics of the elected um people that are there. And I I always wondered just how different that was between uh rural and uh urban locales. And I I've been told well offline that uh, there are some differences but you would think there would be differences when you're dealing with um, different size councils and div- different challenges in different parts of the state. So to say that local government jobs are the same everywhere is probably underselling um, the nature of what it is that that you guys do and, and you could not have more of a supporter here for local government except for those rates that people have to pay or the <laughs> bills that come through. But outside of that, it's all good.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Look, in, in, that, in that vein... Um, Daniel, if I could ask you, and we've we've set a good foundation for the next area, is leader capabilities. And uh, I will ask you more formally, I guess, what you believe are the most critical for you. And I'll I'll give a bit of context here because I've been asked why I asked this, going down this particular theme, is we all have, I think, an intuitive sense of what leader capabilities matter to us if we're the lead And we're working to someone, but it's very different to have the conversation about the conversation, sorry, around what is important to me as an individual, me in a leadership position. So I'll ask you from that context, what leader capabilities do you believe are critical for success in the role uh, in a leadership position? Sorry.
1: Yeah. Um, It's probably really easy to develop a long list here of capabilities because, as we've discussed, the diversity of leadership is such that it makes it easy to to have a lot of um, capabilities in here. I focused on two because um, I probably wanted to drill down on these as much as I can. And the first one is emotional resilience. Um, and to, to drill down on that, there is so many different uh, levers that are pulling you as an individual in, in any, in generally any leadership role, but I'll sort of keep it focused in that local government space, um, trying to keep so many different people happy that you, you will never be able to achieve that. And there's this, the old adage that's um, you know, trying to make every, you, what is it trying to make everybody happy? You'll, you'll end up making nobody happy. Um, and in, in reality, the way I've um, tried to frame the emotional resilience piece into into leadership is, if you can make most of the people happy most of the time, emotionally, you should be able to make peace with that because that's a really really good outcome. And the the tension, and I, for example, I know that we're in we're negotiating, um, which I don't like the term, negotiating our enterprise bargain bargaining agreement here. Actually, I'll tell you why I don't like the term because I think it's uh, I think it's powerful. If you look up the, the definition of negotiation, it's uh, and there's a variety of them, but they generally focus on two or more parties that have conflicting interests. Now, we have I've made this uh, statement a number of times, but our staff, uh, the the officers of the local government, and the management of the local government do not have conflicting interests. Our purpose, our goal, our objective is to make sure we deliver services to our community in a safe, efficient and effective manner and in a sustainable manner. But I think what's really important is from a management perspective, the the narrative that we tell in this uh, space is we want to be able to do that by making sure that we can offer our staff as much as as genuinely possible. So that includes uh, pay rises, that includes um, any other Inclusion in the, the suite of uh, provisions in the in the agreement that we can possibly put in there to ensure we can deliver our services in a safe, in an efficient, in an effective, in a sustainable manner. So, um, I guess that, that that's that's an aside. But for that that emotional resilience piece. That the challenge here is, and if I use that enterprise agreement example, it's it's not as if the organisation can provide too much to our staff, we, it's not possible to give a, an unreasonable pay rise because then we're essentially taking from another area, which is our rate payers, who will pay there. So the tension then uh, would be that we're upsetting our our elected members. So being able to emotionally come to terms with what are difficult factual positions and factual decisions is not an easy thing to do, um, especially when uh, almost exclusively management staff have come through officer ranks in, in the past. So they understand um, there'll always be an exception to some of the things that I'm saying, and there'll be individuals who, who are rogue, but I mean, the reality is bringing fa- um, facts don't care about emotions, right? But the emotions have to care about the facts and emotionally, we need to find a way to make peace with some of those really difficult moments that you're not going to please everybody pleasing most of the people most of the time is is that where I want to connect into that emotional resilience piece.
0: Yeah, that, um, that's a really considered response. Uh, I've, I've got questions. I, I guess the overriding one is when you uh, drill down that list, and again, the list can be as long as you need it to be when you're talking about what leader capabilities are, um, you've, really, you've really gone down that pathway, I think of, being people focused in what you want out of leadership, or at least your own, and that that's um, it's a good thing to hear. Not not everyone will go down that pathway, but um, yeah, there, there definitely isn't a uh, fixed or set number of those capabilities. And even if you spent a career trying to work out what they are, you'll have you only need one person to say, "Look, that might be okay for you, but for me, it's something else." And so, the um the The fascination for me with this topic and to talk to good people like yourself is that um I'm not finding that there is a one unified approach to any of this, and it makes it interesting because if it was, it'd be pretty boring and that there'd be no, I think personal growth in certain leadership roles and that that is I think what you're alluding to that um when you're negotiating with people, when you talked about we're not um two distinct groups with different um agendas or outcomes. That that community focus, I think, is unique to government and particularly to local government if if you're thinking that way. And I, I always come back to the reality check for me. Some people are in jobs for very functional reasons. They don't care about the greater good about being there. It's a job. They go nine to five and they go home. But there are some that invest themselves quite heavily in these roles. And I, something that's niggling in the back of my head in this discussion, you talked about finding a balance in leadership positions, I think you've made it eminently clear that it's something that you work on. And I think it's something everyone needs to work on because um, if you only bring your best self to work, who misses out on that best self if it's under you taken to work? And I've seen it happen to others and and you bring it up. And I think it's worth reiterating that uh, balance is quite important. And again, you helped me set up the next topic area, um, Daniel, around post-COVID-19. So we all got hit with this uh, pandemic, industry engaged with it in a certain way, government engaged with it in a certain way and the most visible were state and federal. But from a local government perspective, do you think the COVID process impacted the practice of leadership from what you could see in your experience? Did it enhance something or did it do nothing and it was just business as usual? Mm -hmm
1: really quickly before i touch on that I, I do just want to share that second capability which was around storytelling and I sure I sure
0: sorry, sorry. <laughs> i jumped I ahead no, yeah go for it i just, sorry.
1: Want to, <laughs> just want to tick off on my notes here because this the storytelling piece i think um we don't need to labor on it but it's a really it's a really powerful piece because if you are in a leadership position by virtue of whatever characteristics you've you've displayed or, or just by circumstance if you cannot tell a story in at least a moderately convincing and compelling way, then you will have difficulty with people not only following um, the the, the directions or the influence you're trying, but but people giving you credibility in that position. And it's an art. So, you know, storytelling is is an art that you can learn and some people can do it um, habitually. Some people um, just need to work at it a bit more. But I think that's uh, yeah, they're, they're the two that emotional resilience and storytelling from a leadership capability in the contemporary world. I think are, are my two um, two highlights. And then the the COVID um, the COVID question, in particular, of have leaders changed the way we practice leadership because of COVID? And in a local government space, unquestionably, unquestionably, and it's it's almost disappointing because um, I proudly label myself in that in that millennial cohort Um, and it was really frustrating that when we look back the the um, the motivation and the real dictator behind remote working what from a local government perspective I should be very clear on that was was COVID-19 it was not any uh, progressive forward-thinking Pioneering type approaches to how do we deliver services in the most effective way for our community. It was quite sadly uh, COVID 19, which has now forced organizations in the local government space to, uh, and some were were better equipped than others at the time. That's a byproduct of them having resources in the tech space. But um, to be able to consider the work environment in a different way. And I've again been proudly millennial. I've always focused on outcomes uh, as opposed to um the location and i the terminology i used i use as a, a results orientated work environment for, for whatever reason if someone wants to be connected into the the free wi-fi down the road and do their work at 4 30 in the morning i mean yes i care about that because you know i want to make sure that their uh, their sanity is intact and everything else is happening because they're a part of the team but I mean, if for whatever reason that is the most productive use of their time, then it would seem really counterproductive to force someone to sit at a desk in a cubicle in that area at this time and finish at that time to get the work done. So I'm probably not pioneering anything when I suggest some of this stuff, but in response to the question, I think it's it's overly disappointing for people of my generation to know that that was it was COVID-19 that, that made that shift and now what we're seeing is there's going to be this continual tension between um, those organisations who can do it and do it well and those organisations who revert either quickly or in a drip-feeding fashion over time back towards the um, you must sit at, at your chair, at your desk, in your space, at your time to do the work that we all need done. And, uh, yeah, i I guess my response is yes, we have changed, or COVID nineteen did change us. It changed us in a good way, and I think our challenge from a, a sector perspective is to find ways not to go back to the the older um, perceived efficient ways of working and adopt and embed and embody these new ways of, of working. Because the next generation is only going to find a more uh, a faster way to do it than us anyway.
0: Thank you for that response. And and for those that are listening or watching this, uh, a good interviewer lets his guest actually answer the question before interrupting them. So I apologize profusely for cutting you off before. This is about learning the craft and I really stuffed up before, so I apologize for that. Um Interesting responses, Daniel. I think the one around COVID, I hadn't thought about too much that it in some senses, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, and I will allow you to answer me this time, is it took a pandemic for people to start thinking more about some of the things that COVID-19 brought up. And that is uh, to the detriment of all of us, I think. Now that's not to say some didn't embrace it. And I think it hit different people differently. As an example I've always been work from home, or at least the last 10 years I have. So the being stuck at home and doing the work from home thing was a no-brainer for me. But for those human beings that we work with don't they, they get energised from others and need to be in a workspace, it would have sucked. It would have really not been good. And in, in over and above that, the hybrid working arrangements in a local government sense is an interesting space. Um, to talk about, and uh, I don't presume for a second that wasn't already being done, but I have my doubts that it was a common thing across the local government sector. So, from from your experiences, have people in the local government sector, and I mean broadly, not just Queensland, but do you think the sector wide that local government is reviewing its response to COVID, and what does the world of work mean for councils beyond? COVID-19?
1: Yeah, definitely there is a, a large-scale review happening uh, from a sector perspective, but also individual councils. And by way of example, uh, I've certainly worked at uh, some councils in the past and I, and I know of um, uh, many others that were uh, violently opposed to any staff member, either current staff member working remotely and or someone who was applying for a role that uh, uh, that proposed they do the role remotely instead of relocating to and within the region. There's a couple of nuances here. One is when you consider the southeast Queensland catchment of councils, many people will live in one council area but, you know, cross a border just innocuously to, to go to their work into another council area. And that's not viewed as um, problematic. But certainly when you move more to the regional councils, um, that – It always was a really parochial position that if you were to work for us and deliver services for our community, then you were to be a part of us, a part of our community. And I think what's good is that has changed, that has shifted a a little bit, but again, not really by choice, by circumstance. So I know that there are a number of um, individuals across the sector who are um, working in a council area but supporting a, a regional council. Um, in, in a different area, and I think that's great. Um, I think it, it needs to be monitored. We don't want you know everybody uh, working in southeast Queensland supporting regional Queensland. That just won't work. Um, and there are just some jobs that uh, you know. I, I, one of the real challenges is you, you can't operate a grader from home. Not now, anyway. Maybe in the future there'll be an autonomous grader that can do this work. Who knows? Um, but. There have been some people in some roles who have been advantaged by COVID and others who have not. And, I mean, even to the extent now, we're really hopeful that we'll get uh, a version of a four-day work week for our staff at the conclusion of this enterprise agreement, and I'm sure we will. Um, But some private sector organisations have been doing four-day work weeks for a long time. Some of them, uh, and a lot of the uh, empirical research has shown that The productivity has not reduced at the very least. It's it's maintained itself, if not increased. And I don't know, actually, I'm pretty certain as a sector, we're not mature enough. And as a society, we're not mature enough yet for local government workers to be working four days a week instead of five without having compressed their hours from five days into the four even though the empirical data shows in many private sector organisations their productivity is the same, um, I don't think we're there yet as a society for that to be accepted, um, especially when the view is, you know, you work for the, you work for the public service um, and I strongly support public service being a verb it, it is a doing word. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I think we're probably many years away from that being an acceptable position from uh, a public service perspective.
0: Yeah, that 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 will change. I mean, I know with um, state government that flexibility in hours and delivery of what you need to deliver is not so um, it's not such an issue as long as you get those hours done and the work gets done. The question around when you do them, and then the bigger question, and this isn't something I, I, I would want you to respond on. I'm just waxing lyrical here a bit. Is the outside perception of what council is meant to do, and that? somehow as a rate payer, if I see Daniel walking outside on Friday and he's done his four-day week, I'm not getting my money's worth because he's not working on a Friday. I think it's a whole lot of horse shit. That's that's just my perspective. I'm sure you have some views, but I I think workplaces have to get flexible. And if we've taken anything out of uh, the pandemic or any other calamities that will come into the future, that flexibility is the byword here. And Uh, you have to trust the people that work on your behalf. But that, again, that's that's a whole nother discussion, Daniel. Um, Let me ask you, nature versus nurture question, are leaders born or are they made?
1: Both. I hate being a fence sitter, but the reality for me in responding to this question is, um, I use myself as an example. I didn't know what leadership was when I was younger. I had to learn it. But some people will innately uh, display those leadership Qualities and capabilities, and they might not know they're doing it. I, I am very confident to say I was not doing it when I was younger. I just simply was playing sport uh, to the best of my ability, and as a result, there's a, a view that people were following me. But um, I, I know now that I'm a much better leader than I was, and I also know that I've got a long way to go to on my leadership journey. But you know that that is a, a result of being exposed to some really, uh, really great leaders. So if I had not have been exposed um, in that nurturing way, then uh, naturally I I am very confident my trajectory of leadership would have capitulated at some point. Um, And, you know, I I may have been a a washed-up footy player, but I I would have been a washed-up leader as well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a bit harsh. I I reckon uh, time and place and opportunity play, huge part here and that's nothing you have any control over so you were doing a good job someone noticed more people noticed and it sort of spirals from there where this gets interesting at that at some point the light bulb went off in your head you went well hey maybe this is something I want to do but just as easily in another another dimension you might have said hell no I don't ever want to lead anyone I'm just happy to do my thing and go home and there's nothing wrong with that because you can't have organizations, whether they're in the for community service or not for profit or even for profit, not everyone can be in a leadership position because you need teams to do some things and you have to have that mix in the organization. So I, I get where you're coming from. And definitely not fence sitting, mate. I I don't think there is a right or wrong on that one. I am a fence sitter, but the skew is more towards uh their made rather than born mm. um that you can, and and this one is a good one. And I'm never getting rid of this question because there really isn't a right or wrong. It's more, how do you argue the point? And so, yeah, I can agree with your position quite readily. So, if you could go back to a younger version of Daniel Fletcher, what would you say to your younger self about being a more effective leader?
1: That. Ooh. That, that is uh, an additional part to the question that we didn't get prepped for. So that's good. Put me on the spot. I think the, for me, probably the most profound lesson I've learned is, or that I now um, try to embody, and I, it's not that I don't share this too much with people, but it, it's, it's about how, not what you do as a leader. And I really, I really want to be remembered um, by the people that I've had the privilege of leading by the way that I treated them, or the way that we we approached certain uh, complex issues or, or really challenging moments, not not the fact that. And I'm a competitive guy. I know, I'll tell you about my sporting background. I, I still in, enjoy a you know a healthy competition. But the the metrics of what leadership looks like in terms of to be successful in this role. Here are your KPIs, and you need to meet them. To me, that's that's the what part of of leadership, and I, I want to be, um, if I was telling my younger self or, or any other younger version of, of anybody, I think it's about you can always get that done, but how you get it done will be way more important than actually achieving it. And people will talk about how you did it. They'll remember how you did it. They won't remember that it was done. They'll, they'll talk about the stories that got you to the success, not about... You know, not about the fact that that box was ticked or that that KPI was met. And um, again, I've I've been fortunate to learn these lessons, some the hard way when I was probably in my earlier career in, in leadership spaces. But um, by by great leaders in in my work and in my sporting the sporting world, you know, I can I can they're very they're always at the front of my mind because I'm I'm regularly contacting these people as well to to sound test and pressure test some of my, my current dilemmas that I have. Um, and, you know, these people are uh, from, a, from a workspace. they you know, Chris Rose, Jude Munro, Nigel Brown, Scott Mason. These people probably um, might not mean anything to the audience listening, but it's I think the power is learning through that space. And, you know, footy coaches like David Lake and Craig McRae that I had the benefit of being coached by, those people have had such a profound impact on my life and my now leadership style that, and it's all of those people were focused on the how, not the what, and that's uh, and I, I now associate myself with those those leaders and other similar leaders because that's the message I want to share. I would share with my younger self.
0: Yeah, I would say don't get it twisted. I think you give back to the people that you just mentioned there when you're seeking their counsel or advice. It makes them better leaders as well because it gets their grey matter ticking. So, mate, that's a really positive way to end the discussion. This has been really interesting. I have more questions that we can get done in the time, but I think we can come back for round two, Daniel. So thank you for your time, man. It's been a pleasure, Eric. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That concludes our podcast for today. I'd like to thank Daniel for sharing his insights with us and, again, the critical nature of local government is important, particularly the leaders that they help to develop that ultimately have a very positive impact on our community. So I'd like to thank Daniel and all of my local government guests for giving up their time and having a chat to me about this thing called leadership. Our next podcast drops on Monday, the 4th of September featuring a discussion we had with Penny Johnson, who is the CEO of the Australian Horizons Foundation. As always, appreciate your support. Please drop a like or subscribe if you like the content we're putting out. Have a great day, rest of your week, and we'll catch everyone on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.